Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Everton. And today we're going to be looking at a forgotten rock classic, Pleased to Meet Me by The Replacements. So this is the fifth studio album by The Replacements, came out in 1987, was recorded between 86 and 87 at Ardent Studios, uh, Studio B in Memphis. And that was with producer Jim Dickinson. So John, I'm gonna let you give the requisite background about who the replacements are and where this album falls into uh, into their catalog because you know a lot more about this band than Mike or I do. Okay, all right. Um, so this is, like you said, their fifth studio album. It is them um, breaking away from their sort of punk roots and becoming, they are the people that sort of invented the idea of alternative rock, but it wasn't really called alternative rock back then. It was just rock music that didn't have, wasn't being played on DVE, but then was still rock music. Um, and, or DVE meaning uh, adult oriented radio. Um, <clears throat> so they get, this is their major label debut. They have to, the band is made up of Paul Westerberg uh, Tommy Stinson, Bob Stinson, and Chris Mars on drums. And the Bob Stinson, who is, of course, related to the bass player, uh, Tommy Stinson, who joined the band when he was 13, dropped out of high school at 14 and went touring with the replacements, um, had to be fired from the band due to his mental illness. A lot of, they, they maintain that originally it was based on Bob Stinson's, Stinson's drug use and his um, drinking, which is the same sort of thing as Metallica firing Dave Mustaine for drinking too much. I mean, they were, they were classic alcoholics. They were drunk literally every day. Um, if you read anything about them, they were constantly on something. Right. Um, but they do have to fire Bob Stinson. So they're down to a three piece. And one of their arguments for losing Bob Stinson is because they're trying to lose the uh, sloppy hard edge that Bob Stinson is bringing to the band. That's another reason they maintain they need to fire um, Bob Stinson. So obviously this is completely tough. Tommy Stinson literally has to fire his older brother who put his bass guitar in his hand and said, we need a bass player. I'm going to teach you how to play this and they actually have to fire him. Um, they decide that they want, they, they're not necessarily going for a more pop sound, but they're, they finally need to make a living. They're living on what Paul Westerberg refers to as welfare wages. They're making $750 a month. Um, each person in the band is. Um, they have no idea where their money is going because they know that it's being, uh, you know, it's selling through uh, they're, they're originally on the label Twin Tone, which is based out of Minneapolis, which is based where they are. And the guy has no business sense that's running the label. So they're sort of hemorrhaging money, but none of it is going to uh, the replacements. Um, and they wind up getting signed by Warner Brothers slash Sire Records to make this major label debut. And they're like, we're going to actually give a crap and we're going to try and make a record that has a hit on it. Um, so 
most of the album is helmed by Paul Westerberg. He becomes the main creative force in the band from then on out. Originally, it was the band was actually started by Bob Stinson, um, but with him gone, the band has now become they're they're growing up essentially, and again yeah. they're trying to get a hit or something to that effect. Um, Warner Brothers Sire sends them to Memphis um, because they can't find a producer to do it. They go through five or six of them and they're being, and in typical replacements fashion, they're, um, you know, making fun of the producers. They won't work with the producer that's uh, constantly working with REM. Um, they're being handed records to listen to the record to decide if they like it based on the producer and they instead break the record in half and send it back to the label. Um, so uh, the band at this point is well known for its being naughty. They've already been banned from uh, Saturday Night Live. Um, because they, they played made... a different song than they were supposed to play, right? Right, exactly, yeah. There was, they played something that they didn't. They also all changed clothes, and then they trashed the hotel room that um, Saturday Night Live had paid for. But I the mean, name of the band is The Replacement, so you think that wouldn't have caught the, the fact that they replaced one of their songs, you know, should right. have been, uh, you know, right, part exactly. of the course. So they, they're, The Replacements, and I'll just go to the, a wider view of this, they're, they're named the biggest band that wasn't. They never, this album alone sold three, 300,000, I think, which is pretty small compared to a lot of other, you know, the, the other um, records that we've been reviewing, but it, um, which is still no, you know, not chump change, but still not, you know, not a hit. Um, <clears throat> they, um, they, they consistently, because I, I, you know, I've been a fan of theirs. This is the album that made me a fan of theirs in 87, 88. I heard it on uh, college radio, PTS, Alex Chilton, and immediately fell in love with it, said, this is the greatest song I've ever heard in my life, and I don't even know who Alex Chilton is. And um, that's when I started to be a fan um, of the band. But the, the issue is, is they have great songwriting skills, but they... Um, they're self-sabotaging. Like every single member comes from some sort of family that has um, alcoholism or mental health issues. Hmm. Bob Stinson and Tommy Stinson came from an abusive father. Bob Stinson spent time in juvenile hall for years. Uh, none of them even, none of them completed high school. None of them even has a fucking driver's license. Okay. Like they just, they are constantly, it's, it's, it's a wonder they're, they lived as long as they did that people in the band are still alive. Bob Stinson died a few years ago from organ failure because he was literally drinking and doing heroin or um, yeah, doing drugs and died from, but didn't die from an OD died from organ failure. Like he literally okay. just killed himself um, on the, on the installment plan, as they say. So um, it's, it's a real interesting story because they should be, they should have been huge. Um, but they never were huge because they continually self-sabotage themselves. It's literally like, how can a band keep screwing itself up? You know what I mean? It's, it's um, every single time that they hit something. And some of it is bad luck, but it's interesting because bands that cite them as influences, Nirvana, the Pixies, Green Day, all rocketed to stardom, um, but never, you know, the replacements never made it past. I think that this is their highest selling album, or at least, no, it's not. They had two more after this, and the one after this, Don't Tell a Soul, was specifically written, hired REM's producer to make it sound like a 1988 album, and it actually, I think it charted at 59 in the okay. Billboard 100, and that's as high as it ever got. So, 
uh, we can, if there's, do you guys have any other questions about them or we can just jump into the first song or whatever? Well, I mean, I think I was aware of them because you and Joe Matta introduced me to them in high school. And mm -hmm. and they they did a cover. They did a Kiss cover, right? Didn't they do? Yeah, they did Black Detroit, Diamond on oh, Black Diamond, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And especially at a time when it was considered really ultra uncool for any alternative band or punk band to even mention Kiss, let alone cover one of their songs. Like that, you know, it became cool later. But at the time, that was kind of a very uh, uh, you know out there thing for them to do. They're the bridge generation. They they come from, I mean, the stuff that they grew up with is like 50s and 60s music. You know what I mean? They didn't grow up with like the way, so they were, they're, Tommy Stinson is 10 years, or Paul Westerberg is 10 years older than us. Okay. He's 61, which is really not that old considering I considered them almost like a, um, you know, a much older band than me, but they, they actually started very young. They, the band started when Paul was 20 and burned out by the time he was 30. Maybe okay. 32 or something like that. Okay. And actually um, I've seen them live because my wife wow. is a big fan. Uh, so oh, yeah. we went, we went and saw them at the Palladium, um, which was okay. I mean, you know, to be fair, I have to, I have to give you the caveat that the Palladium might be my least favorite live venue in all of Los Angeles. Like even bands that I love, probably the least favorite time I've ever seen them was when I'm at oh, the really? Palladium, just because the sight lines are terrible and it doesn't yeah. sound very good. And, you know, you can have a great band there and it's not going to be their best show. What was the year that you saw them? Uh, well, it was sometime in the last decade, actually the last probably seven, eight years ago, I think, because it was before we moved. Okay, so it'd be like a reunion show. So they were yeah. all, they were supposedly sober at that point. Okay. They had, yeah. 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 They had finally gotten sober and they were, um, if they, if you read the interviews, Paul Westerberg hated it at that point. He just wanted to start writing songs to sell to other singers mm. to sing rather than tour. Like he just couldn't do it um, anymore. And so, but he knew that it was a check every time he toured. So anything that you see with the replacements know that apparently Paul Westerberg hates it. You know what I mean? <laughs> because mm. he's doing it literally just for the money to, you know, for whatever. Okay. But that's that's cool. I I saw them on the Don't Tell It Soul tour at the Ritz in New York, actually. Oh, wow. um, but I but I did not see them. I'm, that's the only time I've ever seen them live. Um, was driving from Ithaca, New York, to New York City to see them. And the Red yeah. Hot Chili Peppers played after them. It was a crazy show. It was a really great show, actually. It was like '90s Rockapalooza wow. or whatever. It's really cool. nice. Well, nice. So, yeah. And, and Mike, were you aware of them as this album was coming out at all? I was aware of them because, you know, you would see like little blurbs, like there would be like interviews with Paul Westerberg and uh, Guitar World magazine. And he would offer advice like, hey, they would say like, you know, what do you, what, what advice do you offer to young guitar players? And he'd say, listen, kids, avoid those guitars that have this pointy headstock. They'll give you VD. <laughs> right, that's what Paul Westerberg said. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it's totally the anti-guitar hero approach. But I thought, man, this guy's onto something. And, you know, but then again, you never heard them on radio, so you had to seek them out. You know, otherwise you right. didn't know about them. You know, which is the interesting thing. That that's the intrigue. But I didn't get into them until later, probably until I moved to Los Angeles in the two thousands, and then try to you know see what they were all about. Uh -huh. uh, but at the same time, too, they're probably one of the uh, most underdocumented bands um, in history because, like, I think there's one documentary on these guys, and it's like a 
like a fan film like documentary and it's like people that have played with those guys but none of the guys appear in the documentary um i've heard too right. that there's a great book uh, about them called trouble boys which i haven't uh yeah i just reread that actually this weekend yeah, yeah I've, heard, I've heard that's great and apparently there's a great story you know we call it great there's a funny story in that book apparently they were either recording in hollywood and going from either from the studio to a bar and the story was they wanted to go wherever they're going and they hired a, a taxi cab right but they wanted to go there backwards. They wanted the taxi cab driver to drive backwards. And they had a hard time finding out that would drive backwards. Apparently they offered- Yeah, but they paid him a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so it worked out. It, well, they, worked this out. is, I mean, this is a band that would do things like they would get per diem money from yeah. Warner Brothers and they would set it on fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because they were like, well, we're just gonna spend this on drugs. So we might as well just get rid of this now. So they would literally set fire to it as like either symbolically or literally to try and protect themselves from like murdering themselves. Yeah, and the reason I bring the reason I bring the reason I bring any of that up is I think this is one of the things that are, is probably also unappreciated about this band is you can kind of hear sometimes in their recordings that kind of sense of humor in a way. Oh yeah, this, their sense of humor definitely comes right? through it, on this album. It comes album. across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a great segue into you know the rest of the you know the tunes and record because I think that that's sort of the premise behind what they were doing. Like they were so. Focus, but at the same time, too, being you know silly and tongue in cheek, and had a sense but, of I mean, it doesn't. They almost make no sense. I mean, they were literally just trying to do everything wrong. I mean, it's like you know everybody else would be like begging to get a, a record contract, and then they would they would have one sort of. They just kept doing the music, and eventually things started happening for them, but not by their like doing anything nice for it. But also, John, John, you mentioned too that they were signed to Warner Brothers Sire. I mean, at the same time, the, uh, one of the biggest bands at this time that was signed to the same label was the Cult. I mean, these these guys should have been as huge as the Cult. Right, and work. that's interesting because Paul Westerberg hates the Cult, like with a passion. Yeah. Like he's gotten in fights but, with the same. But you had that 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 big label yeah, no. push, you know. The, you know. Yeah, but they should have been huge, but they just never they never figured out how to do it. So they. I mean, never... and they were. They were never one of these like you know. There's that whole substrata of of punk or or indie bands that that disparage the major labels and see that as selling out. They never like you know. Of course, it's easy to say that when the major labels aren't knocking at your door, right? But right. like, uh, um, so they were never one of those bands that had that attitude or philosophy. They 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 didn't like the major labels because they felt like they were being sort of ripped off. But at the same time, I, they never like begged for, um, you know, them to come knocking for them. They they based it all on like they put out they put out the records and originally it was put out independently. Then it was put on Twin Tone, you know, and they just worked mm -hmm. constantly at their music. But they were terrible at, um. Okay, so this is a weird, uh, weird story. Segway. Okay, the Little Wretches, the band I'm in, will never be played on WYEP in Pittsburgh because the program director Rosemary Welsh once had Robert, our lead singer, say a lot of rude things to her about the way that she programmed the music on WYEP. Okay, mm. so that's why the Little Wretches will never be played on WYEP, which is in fact not true because we were played on YEP, but. That supposedly that's the story that Robert tells us. And, you know, I've noticed that we're never added, even when we had all the other stuff. But the replacements would go out of their way to like, they would be at parties and they'd be meeting somebody who was like, um, you know, some big guy at Warner Brothers and be like, fuck this guy in the leather pants, like out loud. You know what I mean? To the guy that they should have been 
making friends with, where they would go on, um, they would go on a radio station that was promoting them, and they would be like, okay, they would uh, they would say to them like, will you play Little Village um, by uh, this this band? I forget who it is, what Little Village is, but it's literally mm -hmm. these two guys swearing at each other over a country western song. So okay. they would literally get the record, the the radio station fined by the FCC because they were like, you know, do this. They would go up to people that wanted to manage them and say, if you walk around this room with your dick hanging out, we'll sign to CAA. You know what I mean? And of mm. course, the guy was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Goodbye. You know what I right. mean? So they had a chance to be signed to CAA and they blew it or they would have chances, you know, to meet other people and they would or to make nice. Um, they're on KROQ, which is at the time the first sort of art alternative radio station. And the guy's giving them, is interviewing them, and they're literally mocking his accent. You know what I mean? The guy is from Sweden or whatever. He's, you know, mm. and they're making fun of the way that he's talking. And mm. it's, and so of course they don't get added to KROQ. And they, or, or they're at a show and these two um, radio DJs come up that are in some sort of like Chicago alternative station. And they're like, um, and Paul's like, uh, thank you know they're like oh, we're glad we're here we heard it was a great show we just got here we only saw the closer we were having trouble blah 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 um and paul was like well did you add the song to the um um to your your rotation and the guy was okay. like no we haven't added it yet and paul goes well then kiss my ass sideways and walks away and it's like they they consistently do the wrong thing each time Whereas most bands create this shocking thing for their fans, the replacements like lived it. And most of that is, maybe this is one of the reasons why I connect with them, is because they're so anxious, scared, and lacking ways to show emotion that they're just literally walking oppositional defiance disorder kids, you know what I mean, that are undiagnosed, right. that need medication for it. And their only medication is they're constantly drinking, you know what I mean, or they're, you know, well, um, you know, they may be an extreme example of that, but I, I think that there is this weird, interesting dichotomy of rock and roll where, you know, rock and rollers are sort of, in a sense, professional teenagers, right? Right. Where they're, they're expected to defy authority and be rebellious and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, they're also expected to be businessmen and to play along and go along right. with the game and schmooze the people that need to be schmoozed and whatnot. And so you have this weird dichotomy for every band, you know, to what extent, you know, they, they're true to themselves and to what extent they turn themselves into this commodity and, and maximize their sales potential. Well, they would, yeah, right. Well, and they, I mean, all sorts of, they would play live and they would be so drunk that they literally couldn't stand up. You know what I mean? And then they, or they would come out and play live and they would do nothing but covers. You know what I mean? When people had like driven hours to see them, you know what I mean? So they would they, piss off the audience too, not they just. They would piss off the audience. They would piss off, they would just piss off people. They were just angry kids that somehow managed to like, based on their charm, um, you know what I mean? You know, um, but, you know, Trump, you know, things like Trump can take you a long way. I mean, look at, you know, the, the Guns N' Roses history. I mean, those guys, you know, if you would see those guys, you know, you, you seem like they had a fight on stage, you know, backstage when they came out and played the show. You know, that could be cool and all. And, and if you see them on TV, they, they piss off like, you know, uh, American Music Awards and that kind of stuff happens. 
you know, but at the same time too, I think, you know, uh, Paul Stanley had said, listen, you know, if you're going to sell music, you've got to sell records. You, you've got to be smart about it and do these kind of things. But if you're going to walk that line in terms of being like the dangerous, the bad boy of rock and roll, then you've got to, you know, either schmooze or not. Also too, do you have the material and the songs that are sellable, that are accessible to people to listen to and that people, people are going to enjoy? And I guess we'll find that out when we discuss this record. Because you, yeah. you can be the baddest rock and roll you know, guy in the world and you know, walk the walk and talk the talk, but you know, does your, your catalog you know, stand the test of time? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, one last story. They get offered a chance to open for Tom Petty, to tour with Tom Petty for four months. And they literally go out of their way to try and get fired from the tour because they cannot stand doing it because the audiences have never heard of them, don't care, aren't paying any attention. So they're doing things like playing in dresses, you know, um, <clears throat> playing too long, you know, that kind of stuff, um, mocking um, Tom Petty, um, all that kind of stuff. And every time they come around thinking this is it, Tom Petty's going to fire them. They're like Tom Petty's like, no, you have to play till the end. You know, you're you're booked to play till the end. No, but right. I mean, so they yeah. But also too, like you know, any band that is you know of any ilk in terms of you know being like a songwriter type band would want to work with Jim Dickinson. Right? You know, and if you're gonna write a song called you know Alex Chilton and you know had that be like an homage to you know Big Star, you know, <laughs> where you know, and record in the same studio where Big Star recorded then own up to that and embrace it. You know, don't laugh in the face of, of that opportunity. It's like a little deep in terms of what we're talking about here. But at the same time, there are tons of bands that would have embraced that in a strong way compared to the way these guys might have embraced that in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So what yeah, else, okay. what else has, he, has he produced, Jim Dickinson? Oh, man, yeah, he's worked with, you know, John, well, obviously we mentioned Big Star, but there, there's so many bands. Yeah, Big Star is yeah. the big one, but I think he did, was the, his engineer did Bette Midler, I think, something weird like that. Let me actually, you know what, let me look that up, because I know that it's like... No, his, his, his work goes as deep as, you know, the Stones in the 70s. And it's got, you know, oh, really? Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, yeah, I think I believe his son is in uh, the Mississippi All Stars, uh, Luther uh, Dickinson. So yeah, there's interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's yeah. let's dive in. First song, I O U. All right. Um, go ahead, Dave. Why don't you start? Oh. We'll do round robin. You're, you'll start. Okay. Well, I mean, you know. It, it's interesting talking about the production of this album in general i like it but the thing that i don't like about the production on this album is the distorted guitar tones because i i feel like they're they're so compressed uh they're over compressed to the point where it just becomes kind of a wash and like a, a song like this that has this very kind of high energy relentless kind of chuck berry based riff i think sonically would work a lot better if it was a little less compressed so I, I i had a problem getting into this as as the ideal opening song because of that i also um i i question i read what other people think this song is about and i question that um i think it's really about them trying to record their major debut record you know and i i think that uh, like lines like you know, uh, get me out of the stinking fresh air, 90 days in the electric chair. 
is about being in the studio and what a grueling process that can be, especially on a major label. You know, you're putting everything in a micros under a microscope in the studio, and it can be it can be stressful. It can be a, like a, a painful experience. At the same time, as a musician making music, there you realize on some level there is nothing new under the sun. You are basically selling ice to Eskimos. And I think that they're self-aware enough to comment about that in a kind of sarcastic way. This whole step right up, son, going to show you something ain't never been done, you know, uh, with with lines like that. Um, I, I read one interpretation of this song where they said that, you know, it's basically them saying, I owe you nothing to both the record company and the fans. I don't necessarily think that's true. Supposedly, um, one of them asked for an autograph from Iggy Pop and Iggy Pop wrote, I owe you nothing, right? Which is in itself sarcastic because if he truly felt he owed him nothing, he wouldn't have given him the autograph in the first place, right? Yeah. So, um, but you know, I, I like the song. To, to me, my, my enjoyment of it was somewhat hampered by, by the production. Good. Good, Mike, what do you think? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Dave, I agree. Um, this song reminds me of uh, tunes uh, from a band that was out at the same time uh, named the Georgia Satellites. And you know, Georgia Satellites wrote some great tunes, had some great albums, but again, they, you know, if you listen to those records now, you kind of say, oh, I wish they was recorded you know, more recently without all the reverb and the kind of you know, compression that was, in, that was there. And this song, is, as a matter of fact, reminds me of uh, the, the Satellites tune, uh, Slaughterhouse. Uh, from the uh, Salvation and Sin LP, which is a great record too. It also reminds me of Izzy Stradlin, uh, 117 Degrees from uh, Izzy's second uh, solo record. You know, but once you get beyond the production kind of stuff, um, you know, it, it's a high energy tune. I think throughout this whole record, they don't waste any time. They get to the point, like they get to the verse and the chorus and the song's done in two minutes, 30 seconds. And that, that's pretty much consistent through the whole record, which is, is a great thing in my opinion. Um, you know, but it's focused, it's high energy, and it is what it is, and it's a great intro to the record. Um, I mean, but you know, beyond that, I mean, is it a catchy tune? It, it's high energy, yes, but you know, is it something that's memorable to be, you know, for radio? Probably not. Yeah, okay. Um, you basically just covered everything. That is, that's actually Paul watched Iggy Pop sign an autograph that said, I owe you nothing. Okay. It's um, act, it's more specifically, it's about their relationship with Twin Tone Records um, because Twin, Twin Tone was like saying, you still have to give us, you know, you still owe us this contract. And Paul is saying, we don't owe you any money. Um, you owe us money. Um, it's also argued that the song is about, um, saying goodbye to Bob Stinson, like I, you know what I mean, in sort of a very angry way saying like, I don't owe you anything, even though the relationship continued to the point where Paul was constantly sending money to Bob Stinson, even after they had sort of fired him. Now, um, I did read that that some somewhere it said that he did do one day in the studio. Yeah, recording. So on, he might you, be a little if, bit on this. If you get the if no, he's not on anything on this album. If you get ah. the super deluxe version, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. if you look that up or whatever, they remastered it and they sort of fixed some of the 88 problems of, or 1987 recording problems or whatever. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I agree. I actually agree with you on the production. Even now, when I go back to it, because I heard this in '88, it sounded like a record from 1988. Um, but then when I went back to it, I was like, "Wow, this really sounds like an album from 1988." Um, <clears throat> they actually mentioned that, or they uh, Paul actually talks about that and how um, they were they couldn't understand. Even though Warner Brothers was giving them, they had a hundred, like supposedly 150 thousand to record this album, which actually was not a lot. Um, but it was still more than they had ever had, but it was still going to give them kind of a thin sound, you know what I mean? And, and they were, and um, they were arguing that this would never play up against um, Whitney Houston on the radio. You couldn't put this in, it sounded too thin versus the bigger productions of like Whitney Houston and things like that. Um, they, uh, this album is the last album, their fifth album, where Chris Mars, the drummer, refuses to play to a click track. So it's actually the, um, I, you know what I mean? If you listen to it, there's a little bit of tempo weirdness in it or whatever, which is kind of um, interesting. Hmm. And it's, um, I, I actually love that, that guitar riff. I do like the way that it's played. If you listen to the remaster, it's a little more separated. It sounds a little better, but you're right. It does sound like a you know, a poorly recorded album in 1980, or a not so great recorded album in 88. Now, it doesn't make any sense that Jim... Dickinson would do this and sort of, but who knows? You know what I mean? Well, I, that's a great point, John, too, because I mean, you know, obviously with that kind of heritage in terms of, you know, getting great tones, you think that this album sounds completely different. But at the same time, too, I know bands that have recorded out here and they want to sound like, you know, we're talking 85, 87, you know, that era. They want to sound like Freedom Clear Out Revival. And then they got, you know, producer guy comes in and they sound like Motley Crue. And it's like, well, that doesn't sound like Motley Crue. Yeah. You know, it, it's this typical. was the beginning of digital technology too. This is the first, one of the first digitally recorded albums or whatever. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. So it's going to sound, um, so even though the, the producer was considered like old school producer, he was into technology and he got all the new stuff. So there's yeah. all, you'll hear, all, there's all sorts of samples in it that he got because he had a, you know, an early sampler and, so yeah. not an early sampler, but a, like a sampler, you know, so there's all sorts of stuff like that. But, but yeah, it's what, go ahead, Mike, Interesting sorry. to point about this record, from what I've read online, apparently this was recorded as a three-piece band. Right, it's just right? the three of them, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, too, when you listen to it, there's a lot of, you know, guitar weaving going on. So, you know, it was, was it Paul doing both all those different rhythm guitar parts? I'd love to know. But also, too, uh, you mentioned uh, the click track thing. One of the things that stood out to me on this record is how solid the rhythm section is. It's almost like they're playing like a machine, you know, in, in, in a human way, and, and that drives the record. If you take that element out of the record, the record kind of falls apart. You know, that rhythm section is so strong. Yeah. And that stands on, stands on every song on this record. And it's almost like they, they were just playing and like the track was going, and once the track was done, they're like, okay, boom, done. But, you know, that is one of the shiny moments of this record is how strong the rhythm section is. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a story that goes that the Jim knew that the, the right time, how drunk they were, was the best time to record. <laughs> they knew that if they didn't have the alcohol in them in the morning, you know, they would start at 12. Oh, By yeah. 2 o'clock, he knew that he would get good recordings between 2 and like 4.30. And then after that, they'd be just too drunk to do anything. So he'd call it at that point and just have them listen and mix, you know what I mean, or whatever. Yeah, but, but so, overall, you know, high energy tune, you know, great opener. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, but then, again, this this stuff blew me away because I was like, wow, this is like rock and roll. But up until this point, I had only really listened to metal and, you know, sort of smatterings of punk. And I was like, this is just plain rock and roll. There's nothing, 
You know what I mean? There's nothing here that categorizes this as like metal or punk or whatever. This is just straight rock and roll. And that was that was sort of eye-opening to me at the time, to my, you know, my 17-year-old, you know, this sounds like stuff from the 50s, but it still rocks. You know what I mean? So that, yeah, that a lot of, of the roots are still in classic rock from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, exactly. So the All next right. next song, Alex Chilton, which was the single, right? Uh, no, one of the it was no? not the first. It was one of the singles. Yeah. So, guy, okay. what do you think, Dave? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the chorus is is really catchy, and you know, again, I kind of like the song better when it opens up and the distorted guitars go away. I feel like the mix the mix sort of comes alive then, and I'm I'm like, you know, the, the distorted guitars almost feel unnecessary to sell the song. But, um, you know, I, maybe because I don't know a whole lot about who Alex Chilton was, a lot of the, the lyrics seem seem vague to me. And I'm not I'm not really sure I'm understanding what he's saying about him or why he, he's saying it. I mean, obviously, he's a big fan. Uh, but like when he when he talks about, you know, if he died in Memphis, that'd be cool. Why, why would that be cool? I don't know. I, you know. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I yeah. I'll save my what I want to. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. But I, okay. So what else? Anything else? Or no? I mean, I just thought it was it was catchy, particularly the chorus. All right, Mike. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I'm more interested in like the uh, you know the history behind you know the band and what they were trying to you know tap into. I mean, obviously, you know, the big starting point was something that was you know on their brains at the time. You know, considering where this album was recorded. Um, I, I love the fact that the, um, you, you're adding like the oohs and the ahs and the pre chorus and stuff. It's a nice touch. It's, it's, it's very sort of like R&B kind of thing to add into or to be considered you know, rocker slash you know, punk band in a way. And I think overall they make interesting use of, you know, standard chords with like different, you know, bass notes. Like you can play like certain chords that you will know, be like an A, but you have like a you know, flatted note behind that. It, I don't know. It, it, it's... I think the reason it, it, it can be considered alternative is because they're used, they're making use of those types of chords in a way. Um, but also too, again, they, they get to the point. Like you come straight away into the riff, you get into the verse, you get to the chorus. You know, there's no meandering on this record. It's, it's almost like they're almost relieved when the song is done. And I mean it in the best way. Like they kind of say, well, boom, okay, great, you did it, X2, song done, move on. You know, it's not gonna get any better than that. And, and that, is probably from an approach of you know if you're going to record in the studio with you know a guy with the pedigree of Jim Dickinson that you've got to get the tape. And if you're not going to get the tape, then you know this song's not going to be in the record. I think that they prove the point that you can have a good take of a good song and it sounds that way in the record. It doesn't sound like a, a manufactured, layered, you know, product in a way. It sounds like a band playing together in a room. And I, I dig that about this song. Yeah. You that riff isn't the killerest riff you've ever heard. That da 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 that really that that, that yeah. riff, with that opening guitar part. That song blows me away every time I hear. It. I heard this and I had I, I mean, do you guys did you guys look up who Alex Shelton is at all? I mean, do you know who he is? Vaguely. Okay. The, what? Good. Okay. The the box top. You know my ba um the he was in a, a a band called the Box Tops. They did the song, the letter, you know, my baby just wrote me a letter, you know, that song. And then he went solo, most notably the song that everybody actually knows by Big Star is uh, the opening to that 70s show, 
you know, hanging out on, you know, that's oh, okay. 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 That's, that's big star. That's Alex Chilton. Okay. I, in fact, am not a big Alex Chilton fan. Like I have purchased uh, based on just this song. I have purchased big star albums and I appreciate them, but I don't understand what the big deal is. And yet for some hmm. reason, this song to me is one of the greatest songs. The song by the replacements is one of the greatest songs written ever. I mean, the way that the bridge comes in with that, where it slows down to that acoustic, um, you know, and then the, you know, the I'm in, you know, where it's almost like an R&B song with rock and roll in it as well. Um, it's based on um, Paul Westerberg runs into Alex Chilton at CBGB's. They don't know each other. He goes, hey, you're Alex Chilton. I love that song. What's that song? He couldn't remember the name of the song that he wanted to tell Alex Chilton he liked. He, Paul Westerberg maintains that he was like, this is weird. Like I shouldn't be writing this song. No one knows who Alex Chilton is. Nobody's gonna care. This isn't gonna be a hit. And everybody else was like, no, you need to finish the song because that'll, that's what'll make it cool is that it's so sort of left of center. It's not a love song. It's sort of a dedication to an idol. Um, so I don't know, that's interesting. I don't know, I, I like, I mean, it's literally one of my all time favorite songs that riff alone is um, one of my favorite uh, riffs in rock and roll. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, even that, that, you know, the millions of children wait for Alex Chilton, you know what I mean? With all the sounds and alliteration and stuff like that. Well, I guess that's not alliteration. What's that called? I'm an English teacher, no less. Uh, oh. Yeah, I know what you're saying though. The similar yeah. similar word yeah. sounds, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, yeah, it's called, yeah, whatever. At any rate, I mean, um, it's one of my favorite so songs ever. And again, like I've listened to every Big Star album. To me, there's sort of, I mean, they're, they're like another cheap trick to me. You know what I mean? They don't, they're not something I'm going to fall in love with. And, you know, they sound to me, they sound a lot like cheap trick mm. um, or at least early cheap trick, but, uh, and cheap trick has covered them. has covered big star. Right. And everybody who's cool loves big star. REM loves big star, you know, Nirvana love big star. Um, you know, everybody loves big star and I don't get it. You know what I mean? Like I like them, but I don't love, I'm not, I haven't, you know, really gone out and, uh, really, you know, I'll listen to an album and go, yeah, that's a pretty good album, and then I'll never go back to it. But the song is phenomenal to me. Yeah. And I think All right. It, sorry. It, go ahead. Well, Next one up is well, I don't know, it, Dave. What do you? Oh, sorry, Mike. What were you say? I was just gonna say there's an interesting parallel here because you know, if there's so many people that say you know, there's a big star, they don't get it. There's so many people that listen to the replacements, they don't get it. <laughs> and yeah. No. You I, know, that weird connection where like, you know, there's the big star replacement, you know, connection and. They're recording, you know, in the same studio where Big Star recorded, and they're, they're obviously it's something, you know, that was meant to be behind that in a way, you know. Yeah. But you know. well, Alex Chilton does play on the final track, "Hardly Wait." He actually shows up and plays yeah. on one of the songs. Mm. And originally, they were going to have him play on this, but they couldn't get him to do it. So that would be weird to play on a song essentially celebrating yourself, like you know. They would, <laughs> Alex Chilton would well, he would come to the studio. He was friends with. Um, Dickinson and he would, um, mm -hmm. and they made sure not to be playing that song when he walked in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if he came in, they'd immediately shut it down because they didn't want him to hear it because they thought it'd be weird. Yeah. So then when they finally, um, when the, when he finally heard the song, he was like, I couldn't understand the words, but it was it was pretty cool to have a song about me. <laughs> like that was, so I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. 
All right, next one. I don't know. Dave, what do you think of that? Um, you know, I think this is a song where their sense of humor really shows through. It kind of reminds me a little bit of other kind of 80s pop alternative stuff like like the waitresses, um, mm-hmm. you know, like that sort of the, the humor of the the completely, you know, supposedly indifferent, effective Joe cool, uh, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know, man, whatever, right. you know, like in response to everything that that, you know, in terms of the situations that they find themselves in with the record company and the lawyers and trying to make a record and everything and they're completely, you know, or at least feigning indifference to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's fun. It's funny. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? Um, I, I dug into the fact that it reminded me of uh, a track from the uh, the Stones record, um, uh, Dirty Work. Uh, it's all called, uh, it was a cover tune, Harlem Shuffle. It's the same kind of thing. You've got some, you know, saxophone on there and the oohs and odds and stuff. It's almost like, you know, they heard that and said, let's write a song like that, you know, and, and that, that kind of came across, but like with, you know, the sense of humor that wouldn't have been in, in a song like Harlem Shuffle. Yeah, well, they're um, the line "one foot in the door, one in the gutter." Yeah, that definitely uh, the, stands out. Yeah, I love that. I love that line. Uh, the sweet smell that you would that they adore, we adore. Uh, if you listen to the demo, it's they ignore. He switches a, a door and ignore uh, off and on, but then he oh, okay. settles on the door in the original. Yeah, um, I think too. That's one of the things where you know the album would be you know, better served if, the, if the, the production wasn't so drenched in reverb. Like you could, sometimes you have to really listen hard for the pronunciation of those lyrics. And you know, you know, does it need to be that deep? <laughs> like in terms of what I need to do in terms of hearing the lyrics, you know? Because yeah, no, I hear you. Yeah. Um, his. What do you guys think of his vocal delivery? I mean, you like Paul Westerberg's vocal delivery? I mean, it's pretty plaintive is what I always feel like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I like it when he he chooses melodies that have a little bit more range and when he sings in his his upper register, I think, mm-hmm. you know, he's capable of, of doing some really melodic things, you know, and so so I, I think some of his melodies are definitely better than others, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, he has actually, weirdly enough, he had pleurisy, so he has lung trouble when he was mm. a kid. Oh. So he will, yeah. So he'll lose his voice pretty uh, easily. I, um, I, per, I personally think his vocal delivery reminds me of uh, Izzy Spradlin's vocal delivery on his solo yeah. records. You know, it's oh, kind of okay. got that edgy kind of you know voice, and it's kind of on the edge of breakup. And you know, is the best take. You know, I'm, I'm sure it is. You know, yeah. From their perspective, yeah. Um, I like it. Is that they add horns at this point because they were in. They were again. This is. Again, this is if you look at the album cover, it's a scruffy guy in a ripped up shirt shaking hands with a guy in a suit. And it's pleased to meet me. And it's obviously this is the album that's a transition from the young punks to the grown up rock stars. Um, And them shaking hands with the record company executive. Right. Yeah. Um, Um, Which seems to be kind of a play upon, you know, the Stones pleased to meet you right when they're talking about the devil and them mm-hmm. essentially talking about they've sold their souls to the devil now that they've signed with a major label yeah, yeah okay all right i'll it, take that and also too the uh, the cover of uh Pink Floyd wish you were here you know where yes. the guy's shaking hands and he's literally getting burned when he makes the right. you know, so. 
Well, if you uh, the the story is is that it's actually based on Elvis's GI Blues cover as well. Oh right, I read that too. Yeah, which yeah. Is, oddly enough, I'm familiar with that album because my dad had it and played it for me. Oh really? Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, again yeah it's another song about the record company. It's the um, or against you know the record company. It's against um, and it's representational of them moving directions. Um, and then adding the horns is also them trying to sort of mature their sound a little bit um, and show their, you know, the stuff that they like, the, the, um, the type of, um, you know, that they're much more open to different types of music and that kind of stuff. They're not just the young, angry punks or whatever. But yeah, so I don't know. Okay, so anything else you guys want to add? I like it. I mean, I like the um, I like the horn section, and I like the woo, you know, when they're doing that thing too. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a very yeah. R&B kind of Stones kind of approach, which is interesting for you know a band that you know, is considered you know in the history of rock, you know, as like a punk sort of alternative band. Yeah. Well, they were. Uh, yeah, and a lot of that probably has to do with Jim Dickinson, I think. Yeah. Um, totally. All right, next one is Nightclub Jitters. Yeah, I really um, like this one. Um, yeah. I, I think this one reminds me of early Alice Cooper, like mm. right around the uh, School's Out period. There's there's some material that, on that album that's very close to this, where it's he's kind of doing the laid-back kind of uh, lounge act thing you know but this specifically talking about the ritual of going out to the clubs and drinking and trying to meet women and all that kind of stuff which you know that that whole ritual is sort of ripe with multiple layers of general insincerity and i think that uh you know in terms of like the the bartenders and the waitresses being nice to you and saying hey don't be a stranger and everything when you know really it's a purely commercial transaction mm -hmm. from their point of view and you know all the 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 guys and girls that, that you know have single serving friends that they met that night and you know say I'll call you and knowing full well they never will and you know so I, I think it captures that that spirit that that flavor of what it's like to to go out drinking and trying to meet women when you're young in the clubs and the fact that it does it in kind of this cool casual laid back way with just a, a hint of darkness you know about being afraid of the dark and the and nighttime critters you know is what reminds me of of the approach that alice cooper would have taken too yeah all right cool what about you mike what do you think yeah, it's definitely a, a, a time capsule into, you know, what it would be like to go out, you know, on, on the town for, you know, uh, in, in that era. Um, but also, too, you know, the, the intro riff reminds me of uh, the George Benson tune uh, on Broadway, right? Mm -hmm. totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a cool yeah. thing, which adds that jazzy feel to it. You've got the, you know, the jazzy feel on the drums, and it's, granted, it's not that complex of a, you know, jazzy tune, but at the same time, you know, general public can you know, appreciate it and take it for it is. But it's, it's a great play on you know, the nightclub theme, um, but also too, I think it plays into the you know the, uh, the you know the approach that this band probably had at the time, where you know they mentioned I think there's a line in the song where they say like 
I'm going to take a drink before I hit the town. You know, <laughs> so yeah. they want to they want to get a heads up before they go out, so they so they make sure they're ready to go when they you know when they actually hit the bar and, and do the thing. So I think it's it's sort of like a true to life um, storytelling approach, you know, from from this band's perspective, and I think that comes across in the song. Yeah, he yeah. Um... Yeah, agreed. It's it's actually one of my favorite replacement songs. It's interesting because it's not. I mean, it's a, was such a total left turn for them, um, in terms of. Yeah. But it's if you go back to their other stuff, they have a song called Androgynous. If you've ever heard that, um, which uses a piano, um, and this song, but this song literally has a guy who's been on the Memphis scene as a um, saxophone player since the 1930s named Prince Gabe Kirby or whatever is the guy that's actually playing saxophone and then Jim Dickinson got that got him to come in and play on it um, which to me makes the song a little bit more I mean more interesting because they have you know they're it's like they're connecting this is the album where the replacements are like, we want to fit into the pantheon of rock and roll. We don't want to be defined by our genre anymore. We want to be somebody that that you realize is an actual rock and roll band. And, and bands have done that and failed. Like you get U2's Rattle and Hum, which is, mm. you know, kind of not so good. And you get, um, like, what else am I thinking of? I don't know. You get those, those albums that the bands do where they're trying to say, like, we can sound like good rock and roll we're part of the we're part of the culture now and so yeah, they sort of much got, like uh yeah you mentioned you too like their, their song angel of harlem like they were obviously recording at sun studios and, and it was painfully you know obviously they were trying to achieve that kind of sound you know and it, right and it yeah i know i know and this yeah. one this is one of the few times that it actually succeeds mm -hmm. like to yeah. me nightclub jitters actually succeeds at saying look we can actually play Rock, we can play every, you know what I mean? We're part of this tradition now. We're not, mm -hmm. we're not just some one-off weirdo band. Like we actually know what we're doing. We can write a song that's going to stand out. So that's, that's what I like about it too, because it is kind of a total left turn for them um, to do. And yet it, it succeeds really well. And part of it is the saxophone player. I mean, that's pretty, um, that's kind of awesome. You know what I mean? That they did that. Just the oh. horns themselves are pretty cool. But also do the the drumming field. I mean, that comes across. Like you would never think that you know a band of this ilk would be able to deliver that kind of jazzy feel. It, it shows the diversity in terms of their you know, their, their backgrounds, and I think that comes across. You know, and it's the purpose of the song. Yeah, no, it's one. Of, it's uh, again one of my uh, favorites by the band. All right, uh, next one we've got the ledge. Yes, uh, what the do ledge. You think, um, I thought it was interesting that that some of these songs are listed as having explicit lyrics, and this is not one of them, because uh, this was kind of a controversial song. I mean, it's essentially about a guy who is uh, standing on the ledge about to kill himself or threatening to kill himself. And, uh, you know, it's sort of uh, focusing on the bright side of committing suicide, which is the, you know, you do get a lot of attention, not necessarily the good kind, but, you know, perhaps you'd hear from that girl that you, uh, you know, dated, although you're probably going to psychologically scar her for the rest of her life in the process, but, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's well done. It, musically, it, it reminds me of uh, actually the song from the album we talked about last week, 
uh, Streets of Gold. Um, it has that kind of like kind of slightly demented, you know, psychotic feel to it. And uh, but also that film noir kind of spy film, you know, soundtrack thing going on. Mm. And uh, something I read said that the main riff is slightly reminiscent of uh, Blue Esther Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper, which I could I could hear that a little bit in terms of the way the chords are arpeggiated. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's well done. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I would feel comfortable writing a, a, a song like this about this in quite the same way that they do without, uh, without talking about the downside of, of committing suicide Ooh. or, you know, um, but, but for what it is, I think it's very well done. Okay. All right, go ahead, Mike. What do you think? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, now we can. Sorry, good. Okay. Cool. Sorry. So, guy, I think we just lost you again. What do you think? Can we hear you? Can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, Dave, I definitely agree. Um, but then again, too, if you write a song with this sort of uh, subject matter, you know, you've got to have music that backs it up and, and, and matches it in that way. And I think that, you know, that comes across. Um, but also, too, it's, it's a weird thing because you've got these, um, again, you're recording with, you know, Jim Dickinson, you know, Arden Studios in uh, Memphis, and you've got these, like, Rockland guitar tones, which is totally, you know, Boston era. So different from what you would expect from you know, a band like this. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Um, so I but, don't. Well, sorry, the, last, the last thing I'll say too is it, again I wonder you know is this like you know the the great uh, replacement sort of sense of humor coming across where you know that solo is so reminiscent of Pat Benatar promises in the dark you know with mm -hmm. that kind of guitar tone it's almost like and you know that was a song that came out in '84 and here they are doing this kind of thing it's almost like they said well the song sounds like this so do that on, on guitar <laughs> it, that seems to work and therefore. That's what you have. You know, you kind of have to question those kind of things, you know, because you know, was it intentional? Was it just, you know, it just happened? You, know, you, you, you do wonder. And I wonder as a songwriter in what their approach was and or what they didn't think about that. Maybe they just said, well, this is the lick I got and it's all I got. And you put it on there. You, know, you never know. Yeah, I'm always weird about songs about suicide. I don't like them. You know what I mean? Be um, because they tend to be. Like this is, I always took this as like a non-romantic look at it. You know what I mean? Mm. In terms of like um, the way that Paul is singing it, he's very plaintive in the way that he's singing it. You know what I mean? Um, and he's very like, you really feel like you're in the moment. Um, I mean, it's like I said, there's a lot like the, the description of like um, smelling coffee and donuts over the grass um all you know that kind of stuff um i don't know i i actually really like it this is the first single single that they released and again in typical replacements fashion you know do bad luck bad timing whatever this is the same time that there is a series of suicides that are going on around the country where teenagers are making suicide packs and mm. killing themselves together so it's literally released like the same month that this thing is happening 
So MTV immediately bans the video. Um, and they, they have to drop this to some, you know what I mean? They have to um, release, then they release Alex Chilton as the next um, single. It's, <clears throat> Paul Westerberg apparently did try to kill himself by taking a bunch of drugs in his like early um, 20s or something. And he, he didn't manage to do it. And then he had a friend named, uh, that he grew up with since he was a kid who took his own life. So it's sort of also about that. So I, I think um, I think it's interesting because I, I, I don't I don't feel any like sarcasm. I mean, he's being sort of straight ahead about it um, in terms of sort of being non-romantic about it. And but at the same time, I mean, I think it's also sort of a very. That's one of the things that the replacements can do is they can paint a picture in a song or Paul, at least in terms of. Um, you know, the way that he describes what's going on, even the like scream at the end where it actually sounds like the person is jumping. Um, and the, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's again, I, I like the song a lot. I don't think it's particularly, again, I'm weird with songs about suicide. I mean, even Ozzy's Suicide Solution, I always thought was kind of weird. Anytime there's a song about suicide, I always, um, feel like, wow, you really shouldn't touch that. But I feel like Paul Westerberg knows it to some degree better than other people would. Um, well, th there is this, yeah. this, this, you know, artistic problem with creativity where on one hand, you know, you, you, you hesitate to shave off the rough edges of what you're expressing creatively um, because somebody could misunderstand it or misinterpret it or take something negative from it right you you have something that you want to say you want to paint this vivid picture and the song does that very well but at the same time you know in popular culture people do tend to take things quite literally and and they lose the nuance i mean like mm. our our you know, our history of religion and, and, and culture is filled with things that were started, you know, like um, to be taken with a grain of salt or to be taken, you know, as, as one thing and not the other. And then they are simply, you know, or taken as a joke. And then they are simply reduced to being taken as what Joseph Campbell calls the concretization of the metaphor, you know, and, and taken yeah. literally at face value. And so, you know, do you self-censor yourself from expressing, writing songs about those subject matters because somebody might misinterpret it, you know, or do you, you know, do you like, otherwise are you just writing to the lowest common denominator and writing fluff that's not controversial at all? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah, um, I don't know. It's it's interesting because again, um, I I I go back and forth in this song. I love that that minor key arpeggio at the beginning. I love the lead lines in it. I love the sort of like the urgency of his voice. There's so much in this song that's great. But then I also, I just don't like songs about suicide. You know what I mean? Like, but I still like the description that he paints. Also, it's uh, it's apparently stolen. The riff is stolen from Highway Song by uh, Blackfeet. Hmm. That's actually where it comes from. He, I actually read that. Okay, yeah, which is E minor, C, D. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. It's it's also, a, it's uh, who, who's the band that did the song Million Miles Away, you know, the 80s tune? The Plimsolls. 
yeah, from Souls. And also too, I mean, you know, then again, you know, there's songs like, you know, I pulled the plug from, uh, you know, Stars from the 70s and, uh, you know, Under the Blade, you know, from Twisted Sister, you know, you know, uh-huh. you can read into those things. But at the same time too, I, you know, whether or not it's a favorite song on the record, I'm glad that people have the opportunity to write songs about that subject matter and put it on the record and it comes out. And we have the yeah. opportunity to hear it. I mean, you know, there, there's a T-shirt that's out for a band now um, that doesn't really exist anymore, but Typo Negative, mm-hmm. that um, has like pictures of uh, like a gun and a knife and a noose and a razor blade and pills, and it says "Just say yes," right? And you know. Is that meant to be taken literally as a call to suicide or violence? No, I'm sure that in their mind, it's meant to be this sarcastic tongue in cheek thing. But at the same time, does that seem like something that is ripe for misinterpretation by, you know, disturbed youth? Hell yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and just argue that it's in bad taste. Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you one thing. Typo negative. I can't stand that band, but I have a I have a deep undying respect for their fans. <laughs> I'll just say that right here. Anybody that's a typo negative fan is always like some sort of crazy fanatic, and I'm I'm down with you in terms of your dedication. I I don't like I don't like the band, but it's like, but yeah, it's just yeah, it's completely tasteless. But I don't know. But at least they can say it. All right, next up we got Nevermind. Uh, Dave, yeah. what do you think? Um, this one to me reminds me a lot of the who, uh, and, you know, maybe from like the, the Tommy era and probably my favorite in terms of the vocal melody, it's got this terrific, like rising, gradually rising, building vocal melody that I really love. And it's got some, some clever word play about, you know, um, uh, not as ready as I'll ever be. And, you know, I guess your, your guess is more or less as bad as mine. And, you know, so there's some interesting wordplay going on there. Um, I've read that it's about their attitude towards firing, um, the guitar player and Bob. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's one interpretation. I don't know that I would necessarily get that from, from this, if I hadn't read that, but, but, you know, again, musically and melodically, I really like the song a lot. Yeah, all right. This was, uh, well, what's up? Hold on, time out. What's wrong, Evan? Okay, where's she at now? Where did she fall from? Oh, Jesus. Is she all right? Okay, all right. Sorry, our, our drunk cat. Are you watching her? Okay, cool. Thank you. Our cat with vertigo. It's ridiculous. Yeah. We're literally having to babysit. It's like a toddler. I mean, sorry. Go ahead. Carry on. Um, go ahead. What do you think, Mike? Um, I kind of see this, you know, I mean this in the best way. It's almost like an alternative band version of a Brian Adams song in a way. And it totally reminds <laughs> me of uh, One Night Love Affair from the Reckless album, which to me is, is a great record and a great song. It, it's the intro song to that record. You know, it, it's that same kind of feel. It's like the driving feel, you know, that comes across, you know, and I'm not going to get into the, you know, the lyric content, but like that's the feel that I get from this song. And to me, that is you know, the keys of, of a great pop song in a way, you know, maybe this song should have been the single from the record. And I, 
there's a lot of great um, you know stuff where it goes you know so quickly from the bridge into the solo, and it sounds like Keith Scott from Brian Adams' band with like the Leslie guitar tones and stuff for the reintro. Those are the things that, that I take away from the record. You know, I'm not going to get into like the, you know the depth of you know the lyrics and all that kind of stuff, but my takeaway is. Here's an example of why this band should have been bigger than they were, because they were capable of writing songs that were as good as a Brian Adams. It's uh, probably about the firing of Bob Stinson, but it's also he, uh, Paul Westerberg's about to get married. They're all starting to get married because things are getting sort of out of control in the band. So they want moorings at home or whatever. So they're all, so he is about to get married and this could be about, you know, I'm not as ready as I'll ever be. Um, mm. How old are yeah. they all now at this point? Uh, he is probably in his mid-20s, I'm guessing. It's weird how young they are because I, I think of these bands, you know, I mean, which is funny because 25 was like old, mm -hmm. but I think he's, um, he started when he was 20. This is their fifth album. He's probably 25, 26, exactly. something like that. Um, and he's... Uh, He's about to get, he's about to get married. He does eventually divorce her or whatever, but um yeah. So, but I like the line all over, but the shouting is sort of, you know, between him and you know, record labels and uh, unrequited love and that kind of stuff. Um it's pretty cool. I like the song actually. I like the um I love that big, you know, where he's screaming never mind at the end. Um and <clears throat> You're right. The vocal delivery is probably the strongest on the album on this one, too. But it has that, you know, that opening thing where it's like absolution. You know, I love that opening. I'm yeah, like, that's great. It's really cool. And then the build up and all that kind of stuff. All right. Next up, Valentine. What do you think there, Dave? Um, you know, to me, the, I mean, this has a nice bittersweet quality to it. I mean, it's almost sort of emo uh in in a way you have the the whole uh woman as drug metaphor if you were a pill i'd you know knock you back and all all that kind of stuff um and then you know obviously uh, a failed relationship and then he runs into her in a club you know later and and she is unhappy but he's self-aware enough to realize that her unhappiness probably doesn't have anything to do with him particularly, you know, it's probably some other guy that's broken her heart. So everybody's generally unhappy and miserable. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I do think it's funny you know, whenever you, you start referring to woman or a woman is, you know, your kind, uh, you know, <laughs> we're definitely, we're entering into, uh, angst and emo territory. Right. You know what? That's funny because, Huh. I never made sense of that lyric. I, this, just because of that lyric is one of the reasons I don't particularly like this song. The, Tonight makes love to all your kind. Tomorrow's picking Valentine's. Oh. Huh. I never put that together. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Yeah, it is interesting because that's, uh, this is one of the other things that sort of struck me about the replacements is sort of their lack of sexism. In terms of you know what I mean, there's not a lot of songs about like doing it, mm -hmm. you know, um, in their stuff. And so I, I don't know. That's interesting. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. What are you? Are, are you done, Dave? Good. Yeah. Uh, the thing, what do you think, the thing that I talk about this tune is again, you've got a great rhythm section, uh, not unlike a band like U2. You've got Ed Clayton playing you know straight ahead bass, you know guitar, and 
Larry Mullen Jr. playing great, you know, drumming and stuff. And then you throw some Janet Lee chords on top of that. You know, this reminds me totally of um, U2 war era kind of, you know, material. You know, free Joshua Tree, and that, that comes across in, in that way. I, I, you know, I dig it for that alone because it's, you could kind of say it sounds like U2, but it's not really a U2 song, you know, but it's, it's, it's no wonder that, you know, a band like U2 could have this, the success that they had with, you know, with their songwriting in, in that regard. And, and this band probably could have done the same thing, but that just never happened for them in a way, which is kind of really the, you know, the tragedy for the whole, you know, replacement uh, saga. Yeah, that's, um, I, that's actually, that's funny because I wrote down old school Stinson baseline. This is when he, uh, um, Tommy Stinson, the bass player, one of the things that someone, the first thing that someone ever told me about the replacements was like, don't even bother trying to learn Tommy Stinson's bass lines because nobody knows what the hell's going on in this. You know what I mean? Because you could never really, sometimes you do things and you're like, that's the exact wrong note to play right there. But it, you know what I mean? It, it slides right into, you know, you're only a half step away from where you're supposed to be. So, I mean, um, and this is like an old, the way that he plays, it's kind of the way that he, where it's kind of like, wow, what's going on there? But it's still solid and, you know, holds it down together. Um, I would, this was like their, this was, I think another single of theirs. I'm gonna actually confirm that. Um, no, this wasn't a, a single there. No. Okay, never mind. I always thought that this would be a decent single in terms of it's sort of like a good, happy pop song. I never particularly, aside from the bass line, um, simply that line, tonight makes love to all your kind, tomorrow's picking valentines. I was always like, what does that mean? Yeah, um, I could see you, getting stuck on that. Yeah, so I was like, I never, I never got that. Um, but I always thought it would be like, why wasn't that like a big pop, you know, that would be a perfect pop song uh, for something else. And there's even a slight keyboard added to it. Um, that if you listen to the demo, it's, you can just, you know, they play just the keyboard by itself at the beginning and sort of whatever. So it, it's almost like them trying to write a hit or, you know what I mean? Um, so, but yeah, it's funny because I, I like it for the baseline, but the song never really grabbed me because I never really got it. Like there's that, when you wake up in February makeup, I always thought was a good line because it's very, paints a neat picture of like, you know how people look in February, particularly, well, you don't, cause you guys live in LA, but in Pittsburgh, you know, that like gaunt, dried out, crack looking face that you get in February, you know, because it's so damn cold and that kind right. of stuff. Rosy cheeks. Cause they're freezing right. Yeah, to exactly. Death. Yeah. <laughs> like that's February makeup. You know what I mean? That's a great line. I love that line. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I don't know. Again, not my favorite song on the album, but still a pretty good one. All right, uh, shooting dirty pull. Go ahead, Dave. Um, I love the riff. I think it's got a great groove to it. I mean, it's almost got um, like a ZZ Top type feel to it, mm. and, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, and you know, the subject matter. I mean, I, I think of of basically a pool hall, which is one of those sort of American institutions that is this rite of passage for young American, you know, rebellious youth that's, you know, much like a strip club. It's like this slightly transgressive place where you know that there's probably uh, some crime and hustling and hustlers going on. And, you know, so it's got that allure of the 
forbidden and you know violence itself is just underneath the surface and you kind of get the feeling that you know while you're in a place like that it might not be the best place to have long hair and also not the best place to make any sudden moves or you know joke about anybody else's appearance for that matter so uh you know <laughs> and i think it captures that spirit quite well okay cool yeah all right, uh, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. And it's also the kind of thing where you, you've got to know the rules, right? If you're not aware of the rules, then it's easy to make the wrong move. <laughs> and somebody, yeah. somebody's going to call you out on it straight away. So either, you know, walk in there, you know, looking to learn you know, the ways of, you know, the full room and, and deal with it. Now, but the funny thing too about this song overall, it's, it's sort of, a, you know, of the era sound, like it's sort of like chorusy Rockman, Tom Schultz guitar sound and, uh, it, it, I still find it interesting they would use it on the record, um, especially considering Jim Dickens in the background. Uh, but either way, you know, there's even like some finger tapping going on in the solo, which again could could have been you know the, the replacement sense of humor. I don't know. Uh, the bottom line is, again, they're quick and to the point. There's no waste of time. They they do it in two minutes twenty seconds, and, and they, you know, the song is done. There's from beginning to end. They don't waste any time. They don't waste much of time at all. And you know, to tell the story, and that's that's all you can expect from the songwriters. You know, good melody. You know, you can you can debate the production and the sounds at the same time too. Like, you get the point across in a few minutes. Yes, they do. Cool. I uh, my favorite part about it is his uh, his the way that he sings it. You know what I mean? The chorus sounds really you know real urgent. The way he's singing it, um, I like the guitar solo a lot in it. Uh, it's apparently a story about a club owner calling a local um, college station and talking about how the replacements like totally are a bunch of, um, you know, jerk off sellouts and did a terrible show at his club and um, all that kind of stuff and, and uh, that he shouldn't have paid them and all that kind of stuff. And then Paul apparently heard it on the radio, pulled over, called from a payphone to get into more of a discussion with the guy, resulting in him telling the guy to go blow it out his ass. Um, but the, there's lines in there about shooting dirty pool. Um, and then it's, uh, there's like choking on the grapevine, you know, the guy's trying to create, you know, like rumors and things like that about the replacements and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so it's sort of, um, it's, it's all about, you know, just basically this one. And then because they were, he was also to other big sellouts now and, they're too big for, you know, Minneapolis and they, they, they're, they're leaving us, you know, that's what the club owner was saying. And Paul Westerberg is sort of answering that. Now the bottle of beer that actually uh, breaks is an actual full bottle of beer that is thrown against a cement wall. Um, and, um, and then never cleaned up. Apparently they, and he threw six, he threw six bottles and um, they never cleaned up the room. They were in literally like a, a basement of the studio or whatever. And so it was just these cement walls or whatever. So it's like famously disgusting or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I like, I mean, it's kind of, it's, I think it's, um, I think it's pretty cool. And I also like the fact that it's nice and quick and simple because there's no, because sh shooting dirty pool is sort of a, like a bit of a cliche. So it could get kind of tired on the song, but luckily it's only, it's nice and quick and gets to the end. Mm -hmm. So I like it. All right, uh, Red Red Wine, go ahead, Dave. All right, I mean, you know, it, it's an ode to alcohol, which 
considering they kicked the uh, guitar player out of the band in part due to his problems with alcohol seems like somewhat of an odd choice. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to think of a song like this without referencing, you know, Cold Gin too, right? Another ode to to alcohol. Um, I think there's some clever wordplay here. You know, I, I, I like I'm, now I ain't no connoisseur cat, uh, you know, connoisseur rat. Mm. Um, I thought was a, a clever, uh, clever bit of wordplay. So, you know, I mean, as far as it goes, I, I think it's a, a perfectly functional um, ode to red wine. All right. Okay, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, I you know, the bottom list, I think this is an example of how maybe, you know, it, your favorite band could be, you know, the band you see in a live situation. And then when, when they go to record an album, it, it sounds a certain way. But does that really represent what the band sounds like when you heard them live? No. I think this is a great example of how you can have a, a, a great band that, you know, has a, a decent tune, but you know, they would probably sound more exciting in a, in a live situation. You know, I think this song kind of doesn't have the energy that, that, that you would see in a live situation. And I think that's kind of lacking in that way. Okay. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's the one, it's a filler song. To be perfectly honest, I like the kill, you know, like you said, Dave, the kind of sewer cat kind of sewer rat, I think it's the best part of the song. I kind of like the screaming that's going on during the, uh, this um, the solo again there's a there's a line in there that like. Um, they're like red red wine on Sunday, just like Ma Dunn said, then red red wine on Sunday, just like Martin Dunn and I want to know who Martin is, but mm. that's about it <laughs> that's. Uh, yeah, to me, it's it's literally filler. And what's interesting is if you read the, um, I mean, if you listen to the, you know, they have a super deluxe version or whatever that came out in last year, actually, uh, with um, all the demos and stuff like that. And there's like three demos of this. Hmm. And I'm like, why did they try so long at this song? Like, it's not even particularly worth it. There's another song called um, Kick It In that is much better on their demo reel and that didn't make the album, and yet this did. So I never understand it. But it and that has a, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. But again, to, to my point about being seen alive, a band in a live situation, like sometimes you can have a song that might not be the best song in the world, but it sounds so good live. You know, and then when you hear it on record, yeah, like, it's got a lot, oh, of, it, okay. yeah, a lot yeah. of energy to it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, red wine gives me heartburn immediately. So I'm not a big fan. <laughs> that might also be why I don't like this. And it gives you a headache, too. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> well, that too, yeah. All right, Skyway. What do you think, Dave? Uh, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. I mean, I, I really like the, the, it's got a very sparse but straight ahead uh, arrangement that I think really serves the song well. And, uh, you know, melodically, it's it's strong. And I think, you know, it, it, it takes sort of the metaphor of this guy that is seeing this woman uh, and kind of liter putting her up on a pedestal uh, and fantasizing about what it would be like to be in a relationship with her, uh, but also doing it from, the, you know, in a very clever way from the perspective of like kind of an airport worker that's one of the guys on the ground that's <laughs> maybe loading the luggage in and out of the plane and he's looking up at the skyway and he sees the same uh, flight attendant, you know, going to work every day and he goes, man, you know, 
maybe I'll run into her one day and we can go out and date and whatnot. And then it also, you know, manages to slip in a little bit of interesting social commentary about the parallel between the Skyway and the subway that, you know, are both places that attract bums when it gets cold, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's a perfect little two minute pop song. Yeah. What do you think, Mike? Yeah. I, I love it for the fact that it, you know, some of the, you know, the best songwriters, you know, that have been, you know, recorded, you know, bands like, you know, the Beatles, George Harrison and, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, those things come across in this song. There's a lot of great chord changes that sound like, you know, George Harrison chord changes. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's uh, the, song, uh, the Sounds of Silence track uh, in terms of the lyrics and the approach of, you know, you know, Simon and Garfunkel you know, is, as much as they're like, you know, a folk kind of group, they always have sort of like a dark seedy vibe to their, to their lyrics that they, people don't really recognize as much as others do. Um, and also they do like that kind of melody approach, you know, to a thing. It might not be like a lyric, but it's, it's a, a lyrical sort of release in a way. I think they incorporated that into the song as well. I think that's a great, um, you, know, you know, touch to, to their songwriting in that way. I think that that comes across too. I love the, um, there's that brief mention of like the string section at the end, at the at the end of the song. It comes out of nowhere, but it punctuates the song in a great way. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, it's again sort of an unrequited love. Yeah, Dave, you said everything I was going to say. That bums like every other place when it's cold. Um, and then when he finally gets his chance to say something, there's nothing he can. There's not a damn thing he can do or say. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Again, the production, I mean, these, the way that the acoustic sounds, it sounds a little dated when you listen to it. You know what I mean? The way that it's recorded or whatever, it's kind of interesting. Um, I guess it's a 12 string, right? It sounds like it's a 12 string. I could be wrong. I would guess so. I would guess so. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I like it too. All right. Uh, last one. Can't hardly wait. Dave, what do you think? Um, I like the song. I think, you know, it, it, lyrically, it sort of seems to be about uh, being stuck on the road and and being homesick and, you know, like being sick of being in hotel rooms and writing letters to try to stay in, in touch with people. And, and uh, you know, th you just can't wait to get in your own bed and get some decent quality sleep at the end of the tour and and uh you know i think it captures that kind of uh that angst uh and and longing very well all right okay mike uh when i hear the song i i kind of think you know this should have been you know the song that everyone should have heard on the radio from this band in a way it's almost like you heard it before and it sounds like them and you think it would be a, a you know big seller on the radio um, it's kind of cure-like, but it's also kind of, you know, Keith Richards' expensive linos in a way, you know. Uh, it's got a cool, again, that, that you know, is, again, due to the great rhythm section that, that is in this band. I mean, you know, it's almost like, again, you, you could hear this band playing that, that rhythm track for like 20 minutes, and then you know, once the other guys got their act together and they recorded the track, then they got the take they needed, uh, again, due to the, the great rhythm section. But also, too, I, get, I agree, Dave, too, it's like, you know, there's lines like you know ashtray floors and you know filthy jokes that that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's about being on the road and it's a great way to, to close the record. Um, this again, I really think if you know, because I've spoken to people about the, about the replacements. They said, well, you know, I know the band, but I don't really know their songs. But like if you hear this song, this is a great example of their songwriting. 
if you want to know what they sound like, I think this is one of the songs where that comes across. You know, whether or not it was you know successful for them, you know, it's debatable or you know remains to be seen. But at the same time, too, like this to me on this record is what the replacements sound like as as a band. You know, if you want to call that in terms of their their being like a three piece uh, for this uh, go around. Uh, yeah, this um, again. I love that riff that opens it. It's so simplistic. It almost sounds vaguely like dumb, the doo 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 doo, you know, that thing. At first, I was, you know, I, I love that. And you're right, the rhythm section that just comes in and holds it down while that little riff is playing mm -hmm. is like fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, okay, so the, um, it's a, a famous horn players from around Memphis that are adding the horn section to it. Um, I like the I like the phrase lights that flash in the evening through um, a crack in the drapes or whatever. That's just a great line to me. Um, yeah, you think of like a Motel Six that's yeah, like near a truck stop and it's got the you know lights in the middle of the night and you're trying to yeah. get asleep and yeah. Right, um, and then that um, I think okay yeah it is it is about being on the road. Um, it also can't, it, I think it's interesting that it, is, it closes that album, which is this is the album that the replacements are finally going to be famous for. And so it, stri it strikes mm -hmm. me as like, this is the, uh, I can't hardly wait for stardom. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's sort of like, or at least, you know, some sort of like not living on $750 a month and all the beer I can drink. Um, interestingly enough, though, the song was originally about suicide. I've never heard a demo of it or anything like that, but the, um, the producer told him to change the lyrics. He said, you can't have two suicide songs on one album. Oh, um, and so he changed it to this. Um, again, it's can't, uh, can't Hardly Wait is like the replacement song. Like there's even yeah. a movie that's named Can't Hardly Wait based on this. You know what I mean? That's like they got the name from this song. Oh, yeah. They got um, this is if you um, you've got you guys ever seen Heather's? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, you understand that the Heathers is actually a giant homage to the replacements, right? What high oh. school do they go to in Heathers? They go to Westerberg, Westerberg High. High. Okay. Yeah. What's the phrase that he always uses? Is uh, the the character in the movie uses the phrase "Color me impressed." Is the name of a replacement song. There's all sorts of little weird replacements references oh. in the whole interesting um, movie, and it's partially. Um, and then on top of that, Winona Ryder was friends with Paul Westerberg. They never dated like everybody thought they did. But, um, you know, sure. um, there's all sorts of so this is to me, this is the replacement song. This represents probably the pinnacle of their writing. Now, what's funny is, is I like the horns and I like the the, the string section, which is played by the University of Memphis's head of the music department. So the band will disown the string section. Uh -huh. The string mm. section was added after they left, okay? Uh, okay. Um, and they will say, we didn't want that string section. We thought it was stupid. I like the string section. I think that's totally fine and totally cool um, because it makes the song that much more epic uh, to me. I mean, this song, and also this song spoke to me about, I mean, you know, because you, this is right when I'm going away to college and when you're homesick and you're in, you know, all your friends are living somewhere else. You know what I mean? It's all about getting back together, that kind of stuff. This song really spoke to me at the time that I heard it, you know, the first time. Um, 
yeah, there's just, uh, to me, this, this is the pinnacle of their writing. I mean, Alex Chilton may be my favorite song, but this is like it. You can't get any better than this. So, wow, which that's my. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. I, I, again, that shows that you know maybe I'm not so far off point in terms of you know, just being looking for places to really sound like in a way. I'm glad I, I figured that out. You know, listening to this track because really, I think this is the thing that you know really is their selling point in a way. You know, what I mean, in a commercial kind of way, it's like that's what the band sounds like. And, you know, right. Yeah. That's a, yeah. And and then they they go. Um, they put out another album out of, uh, after this called Don't Tell a Soul. Mm -hmm which is their highest tracking record, although I still don't think it breaks the record for sales of other stuff that they did, but that's the one that, if you remember, uh, Aiken or I'll Be You, yeah. uh, do you remember that song? Mm -hmm. Okay, that was their high, that was their biggest hit. And that made it to like number four on the alternative, the, the newfound alternative rock chart. But in terms of record sales, it only made it up to like 59. And that's their highest charting, which is the next one. And that was specifically written to have a hit, well, uh, the one after this, because they were so sick of doing this one and it not working. Them sort of trying to do it on their own terms. And then they finally are like, they literally hand themselves over to the record label and they're like, we don't know, you know what I mean? And the record mm -hmm. label's like, you're gonna work with this guy. He's gonna edit your stuff so that it sounds like the stuff that's on the radio now and you're gonna get your hits and you're finally going to make the money you're supposed to make. And we're finally going to make back our investment. Yeah. And we're going to pay for all the buses and hotels that you trashed. And it did, even that one after this didn't work. Well, Forget well, I just wanted to, you know, it's like a sort of a, you know, tangential kind of discussion, but like now that we have one of our, you know, resident uh, replacements experts on, on the line with us. What is the connection between Paul Westerberg and the movie Singles and the songs that he wrote for that soundtrack? Like, I think particularly the song uh, Dyslexic Heart that was, you know, key. Yeah, was, how did that, that was his, sorry, how did that come about? Because that movie was based in Seattle, but you were in the, you know, replacement from Minneapolis. You know, what, what, how did that all come about? I don't, I, I don't know. It's not really spoken about. Uh, that, well, that was, again, they were starting, that was during their Don't Tell a Soul period where they were on Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers was finally trying to make them the commercial band that they were supposed to be, so they were trying to get them into movies. At one point, there was some sort of goofy thing that, like, the head of Warner Brothers was like, um, okay, I, they're building a mall in Minneapolis, and I need you to go play at that mall. And Paul Westerberg said, fuck you, we don't play malls. To the, like to literally the head of whatever. But during that time, um, they were trying to get them um, to play. So finally, they, they put out their last album, which is called All Shook Down, which is literally just a Paul Westerberg solo album. Like they don't even have the people playing on yeah. it. Or the, the normal people playing on it. And then he does 13 songs. But during that time, he just gets he is literally doing anything he can to survive. Um, so I think, does Winona Ryder, is she in singles? She's not in singles. Uh, Kira said, no, okay, uh, Matt Dillon, um, you know, a lot of guys. Yeah, yeah, him. that's it. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Yeah. So yeah, it was just, it was just like their last ditch attempt to make some money off of the replacements. You know what I mean? Like Warner Brothers had a okay. deal with it. But it was also, and he, and actually that charted pretty high, if I remember correctly. I, I, that's the reason I bring it up because I think it was also a Cameron Crowe flick. And I think that, you know, who knows you know, what the connection was there. Um, yeah, but it, it was almost like the standout track on that soundtrack, you know, more so than the Alton Chain stuff and, you know, the, well, the Citizen Dick stuff, it was, you know, the fictional band in, in a movie. But, like, you know, the Paul Westerberg song was really the thing that stood out in the movie. 
Yeah. Hmm. Interestingly enough, Paul Westerberg is probably dyslexic, but has never been diagnosed. There you go. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. I, I think that was an interesting time because they that um, I bought that solo record um, as soon as it came out, and um, and I saw singles, and you know what I mean, and and that was like the end. But then it sounded like Paul Westerberg was finally embracing his big pop self. You know what I mean? It's pop rock self at that point. And that's where, because he did, well, I forget. There was another song that he did for something else. I forget what it was. Oh, well, he had some success. And what's interesting is he got to play SNL mm -hmm. on, um, with that, because of that song. And mm -hmm. the entire crew was like, nobody mentioned the replacements. Because apparently Lauren Michaels didn't realize Paul Westerberg was part of the replacements or whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? Uh -huh. so they were sort of, yeah. Okay. So um, they, he, he played it. And what he played was Dyslexic Heart and Can't Hardly Wait. Those were the oh. two songs he played on Saturday Night Live. Wow. And this is the point where he is completely sober. He got <laughs> sober by being afraid to go to... Um, rehab hmm. he was like i'm not going to rehab so i'm just going to stop drinking hmm. and he and then i guess what the problem was you know i mean that's the absolute wrong way to do it you know what i mean so he became he basically just became this mean old guy for like dry drunk or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah dry drunk yeah exactly and then finally started seeing a therapist in 2000s and, and apparently i don't even know if this is actually true because i don't know how this uh how this writer got this information but he says when paul the therapist said when paul first came and he said that he was pissed off that all these bands like green day and nirvana had been stealing his stuff and were now famous off of it and he wasn't famous and the therapist thought that he was delusional until he actually bothered to look up who his patient actually was or whatever um but again, I don't. I think that's apocryphal because the therapist wouldn't talk about that, you know. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think that's actually true. Well, well yeah, thank you for entertaining my question about that. I've always wondered about uh, his connection with that movie and uh, that song, and now I know more about that. Yeah, it's it's a good song. I love that song. Yeah, it's a it's great, a catchy, it's a great it's little, catchy tune. Yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, his stuff is, but he didn't. He's not doing anything lately. They do the replacements reunions every so often, and then that's about it. Just to so, keep the money flowing in. And Tommy Stinson is the bass player for Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Or at right. least was. Yeah. So, and they both, um, neither of them were fans of the other's band. <laughs> Tommy Stinson hated Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses hated the replacements. And, or didn't even know the replacements. You know what I mean? Or no, that, that's the story. Axl Rose went to go see the replacements and was unimpressed. <laughs> I thought they were just a bunch of lousy drunks. So. Well, you probably caught them on, on, on a bad night. So what do you do, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. So, so, so final thoughts on the album? I got, I mean, I've told you everything I know about it. Again, this was my, this was my introduction to alternative rock. Although I, I didn't understand that they, they didn't call it alternative back then. It was college rock. And right. this was sort of my first introduction to that. Um, this and Fugazi came out at, a, you know, about the same time, like my junior, senior year of high school. And this was a, a time where I was like, oh, there's all this stuff. Um, 
and then even REM. Um, this was like the beginning, but this album itself was sort of my big gateway into, oh, there's a whole world out there besides top 40 and then, and no disrespect to you, Dave, but then what Dave likes, you know what I mean? So it was because basically my <laughs> musical taste was just based off of stuff my dad liked and the stuff that you liked. And then eventually a little bit of Joe Matta and then, you know, John, you know what I mean? But yeah. I was like, um, so that was, um, that was kind of eye-opening to me. So that's why I like the album so much. A lot of people don't, you know what I mean? Some people don't like it because they think it's a big sellout album. Some people don't like it because it's, um, like you said, the production is pretty, is pretty crapola. But I love it. Anybody, uh, yeah, any other final thoughts? Um, you know, I, I, I think my, my favorite tracks overall, probably Nightclub Jitters, uh, The Ledge, Nevermind, shooting dirty pool skyway can't hardly wait i the the order of the tracks i think could also be stronger because mm -hmm. I, I i feel like you know i don't really start getting into the album until track four okay yeah until uh yeah okay that's a that's an interesting thing because iou definitely is not the strongest opener no, I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna agree with you. It just comes it comes too fast, and it comes to, you know what I mean. Um, it's all it almost yeah. I understand what you're saying because it almost doesn't have a hook to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's not yeah, much. Yeah, it's of not the catchiest song. Yeah. Uh huh. No, I totally buy that. Again, I I Alex Chilton just blew me away, man. That riff just I don't know what it is. Like there there's there must be overtones in that that hit like endorphin releases or something. <laughs> but I because I literally I heard that song and I was like, this is the greatest song I've ever heard in my life. Um and then it you know what I mean? I still, you know, like I said, I don't even like Big Star, you know, so whatever. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? I, I again I just enjoyed the process. Even with our you know last discussion about TSOL, I, I went to Amoeba a couple of days after our discussion. I found a vinyl copy of TSOL hit and run and I was so happy to find it. Now I've got it and I can see it again. Um, you know, previously or prior to this discussion, I only had, you know, uh, All Shook Down and a couple of compilations, uh, the replacements. Now I've got essentially the whole catalog uh, in preparation oh, wow. for, you know, for, for this discussion. It's cool to, you know, because, you know, compilations are one thing, but, you know, they don't give you the whole picture of the band. You've got to, you've got to hear the catalog, you know, as, as they yeah. grow. And, and I'm just getting into that. I just I appreciate hearing things that I've never really either had the time to do or, you know, had the focus you know, to, you know, to, to pay attention to, uh, but, it, you know, to, to the point of the discussion is, um, you know, songs like Skyway and Can't Hardly Wait are really, you know, to me, the standout, the standout track from this record. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to delving into more of the catalog because there's so much about this band that I don't know. And there's so much that I do know about like bands like Big Star and, and the work that Jim Dickinson has done with the other bands. And it's fun to see how that kind of come together as like a beach stew in a way. Like, you know, it's all part of the same thing. And to be able to have this, this ingredient that I wasn't aware of you know, prior, it's fun to be able to delve into. And I appreciate that about our discussion um, and learning things from you guys like you, you know, that, you know, know things about me that I don't know. I don't know everything. I know there's a lot, there's a lot that I do know, but there's a lot that I don't know. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to learn from you guys. Are known well, knowns and known unknowns. Right. Yeah. Speaking of what you do know, Mike, your turn is up next. What album, what forgotten rock classic album will we be listening to next All week? All right. We're going to go with one that is 
kind of well known, but it's well known for the the hit single from the record. But the rest of the record is really great, and um, we're gonna go with Little Feet, Dixie Chicken. Okay. All right. Cool. I don't know that album at I, all. Not Little at Feet, all. Dixie Chicken. Looking forward to it. Yes, they don't make records like oh, this, this anymore. Awesome. This, this record kicks ass. I'm not going to try to sell the, the podcast, but this this record kicks ass. Cool. You're going to dig All it. All right. Well. All right, man. I'm psyched. All right. Thanks, guys. Good talking yep. to you. Yep. See you next All right, week. See you later. Bye. Bye.